Hello to you. Welcome to the Imaginary Advice Podcast. Um, I am sitting in the bottom of my wardrobe, as usual, like an idiot. Um, Listen, I just wanted to let you guys quickly know uh, at the top of the episode uh, about uh, about a tour I'm going to be doing across the UK for the next couple of months. I'm touring my one-man theatre show, Stand By for Tape Backup. It's a weird title, let me say it again. Uh, Stand By for Tape Backup. Um, this story, right, it's a story, it's a true story uh, about, a, about a videotape that I discovered in my loft about three years ago that uh, used to belong to my granddad. It's the videotape uh, that me and my granddad used to record all of my favourite TV shows and films uh, when I was a kid. So uh, in this uh, in, in, in this show, what I do is I can bring this videotape on tour with me and I show the audience parts of this videotape and then uh, and then I kind of remix the material live on stage. I kind of loop it and uh, twist uh, the material on this videotape into the shape of a story from my life. Um, the whole thing was inspired by that uh, that kind of classic student experiment. Oh, you might know it, uh, where uh, where you put on um, the Wizard of Oz uh, on video, and then at exactly the same time, when the when the, the MGM lion reaches his third roar, um, you put the needle on the record for the Dark Side of the Moon, and then you kind of sit back and kind of experience both artwork simultaneously. Uh, and you start to immediately begin to notice all the little sort of similarities kind of between the two. Um, synchronicity, right? That's what that, that, that whole experiment, that's what that's all based on. Was It's kind of similar principle uh, in my show. And the idea is you're kind of watching this videotape and uh, you're listening to my voice and then you begin to notice the kind of similarities between the two shot by shot. I'm trying to kind of match uh, my story to the rhythm of the videotape a little bit as if the kind of the screen was this was this sort of rolling metaphor for my story now I've worked on this show for like uh three years and I yeah I do think I genuinely do think it's the best thing that I've um that I've ever made and uh it, it picked up a lot of nice reviews at the end of fringe in the summer and and now I get to take it on the road which is really exciting now I haven't done a proper UK tour for years and years and years I think about six years actually since I last got to kind of go out and, and do like a tour like this. So um, yeah, I'm really really excited. And, and, and if I'm coming to your town, it would be amazing if you came down and said hi. That would really mean a lot to me. Okay, okay. I'm going to quickly just go through the dates, and then we'll kind of move on, and, and, it'll, and it'll be done. But just so you know, okay. So um, uh, starting February 24th in Bedford, then March 10th in Newcastle, also March 11th in Newcastle. That's both at Northern Stage. Um, March. 14th, uh, Salford Keys, March 20th, Canterbury, uh, March 23rd in Exeter, March 25th in Birmingham, March 26th, Ipswich, April 2nd, Reading, April 3rd, Bristol, April 4th, Brighton, April 9th, Oxford, April 10th, also in Oxford, and then from April 28th, right the way through to May the 2nd, I'm doing, that's uh, five dates, 
at Shoreditch Town Hall in London. Um, there's still some more London dates still to be announced later on in the summer, and you can get links to buy uh, tickets for all those gigs uh, through my website, which is Ross Sutherland at no, not you can get Christ. You can find the links to buy all those tickets through my website rosssutherland.co.uk I'll I'll also put a link to it on the podcast Tumblr imaginaryadvice.tumblr.com and uh, and yeah I'll put a trailer up there as well so you can see a little bit of an extract from the show okay that's done thanks for sticking with that this show is also sponsored by stamps.com no it isn't that's just a joke <coughs> I'm just I'm just joking about that. Okay, right. Okay, so this week on the podcast, it's another true story episode. Uh this story is about romance and crime and prison. Uh and I will admit it doesn't have the happiest of endings. And normally uh I don't worry about this podcast taking like a miserable turn in the third act. I'm relatively comfortable with that by now. Uh but because it's coming up to Valentine's Day. I don't know. I feel like I have a responsibility not to leave things on a bummer. Valentine's Day, that's a crappy enough day for a lot of people. Anyway, I don't want to bring sand to the beach. So to lighten things up as uh, as a coda at the end, I've put a, uh, a short poem that I wrote for children about shoes. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, thanks for trying to enjoy it. Uh, that makes you... A better person than I am. And then I will just put the intro sting here. Imaginary advice. In 2003, I moved from the city of Norwich up diagonally across the country to the city of Liverpool. Now, I was moving to be with my girlfriend. Uh, We'd been in a long-distance relationship for the last two years, but we knew we couldn't carry on like that forever. We had to close the gap. My girlfriend had one more year of university in Liverpool. I'd already graduated down in Norwich, so it made sense that I would move to Liverpool to be with her. And when we get a place, just the two of us. And this was, uh, of course, it was really, really exciting and scary as well. I mean, the move put a lot of distance between me and my friends and family, but at the same time, you know, like a new beginning. There's just something very, very romantic about a new beginning, isn't there? You can, you can, you can reinvent yourself as, as a new character in a new city. It's a whole new story. Now, I was straight out of university, as I said. I was broke and not really qualified to do anything, so my new story began with uh, a couple of soul-destroying years working on the customer complaints desk for the Royal Bank of Scotland, where the complaints were usually just so horrible and abusive that I spent most of my working day hiding in a toilet cubicle. And then uh, I'd come home each night to uh, our new home, our romantic council flat, which we were subletting off a chipper heroin addict called Sam. See, this is not just a story of me and my girlfriend. This is also the story of Sam. (laughs) 
we first got put in touch with Sam through uh, my girlfriend's old landlord. Sam was a character in the local Toxteth community, a, a drug dealer and occasional home invader. He was, he was a smart guy, though. You know, like, uh, he told us that uh, whenever he robbed a house, he'd always uh, turn up at the front door holding a loaf of bread and a pint of milk. So if any neighbours saw him kind of going through the window, they would automatically assume that he was just the owner who had just locked himself out, you know, after just popping to the corner shop. Before I even took one step into Liverpool, this deal for the house was it was already done. We would uh, we'd rent Sam's council flat on the cheap, no questions asked, and we just did it. I mean, we, we I'll be honest, we, we welcomed Sam into our lives because we thought, you know, with his help, like my shitty minimum wage at the Royal Bank of Scotland could actually stretch far enough to afford us some luxuries, you know, like uh, uh, sausages. <laughs> or um, uh, kitchen roll. On the night that I first arrived in Liverpool, Sam popped over to the house to show us how to run the gas meter backwards and uh, to give my girlfriend a bag of weed to sell for him. So, so far, so romantic. Once my girlfriend graduated, she found herself in the same shitty job market as me. Uh, for her, it was working in a deli just off Hope Street, where, um, similar to my job really, people were rude to her all day long. Just as if it was their God-given right to have a three-bean salsa wrap every afternoon. Then, somewhere around the end of a particularly grueling summer, we saw an advert in a newspaper. A recruitment drive for teaching in prison. Specifically, the education department of HMP Walton, a huge grade B Victorian prison just outside town. And at that moment, we were so sick of our jobs, of customers being rude to us day in and day out. We thought, you know, why not give it a shot? Although I must admit, like in retrospect, it's not as if murderers are particularly well known for their politeness, are they? I don't know why we thought they would treat us nicer in prison than, you know, in the deli. But anyway, about a month later, it was all go. Me and my girlfriend started a work trial at HMP Walton. I was teaching creative writing, she was teaching art. And as it turned out, yeah, the murderers were quite nice to us. You see, I mean, one of the common traits of psychopaths is that they're actually quite charming. As long as you don't think about what they're trying to manipulate you into doing, uh, it, it, can feel, it can feel quite lovely. At the end of her first day in the art room, my girlfriend was given a painting by one of the cons in her class. It was a painting of a heart with an axe through it. Then, written above and below the picture in big red letters, it said, Welcome to the big house. I thought that painting was amazing. Tender, yet, yeah, okay, terrifying. 
I asked my girlfriend several times if we could have it on the wall of our flat. I don't know why, but for me, that painting was a symbol of our new exciting lives. We were kind of striking out on our own, living dangerously, a new start, a new city, a new house. But my girlfriend wasn't really up for it. I don't want a murderous painting on the wall, she said. And I guess that makes sense. To begin with, I loved working in prison. It felt almost like the perfect conditions for a writer. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. I think the best story is, uh, yeah, well, okay, so before and after every single class, right, we had to count in and out all of the stationery. We had to kind of account for everything. So just so we could be sure that like a pencil wasn't going to turn up in someone's neck later that afternoon. It was somewhere in my first week when we were um, counting back in all the pens at the end of a session when one of the guards kind of came over to me and, uh, and he said to me, okay, the thing you need to know about prison is that everybody is lying to you all of the time. They're all going to tell you that they're innocent or they're going to tell you that they're in for a much smaller crime. They're going to tell stories of one another. They're going to try and stitch each other up. You've just got to assume that everything is a lie until you know otherwise. I listened to that and I thought, brilliant. Like a class of conniving liars it's the best thing a creative writing teacher could hope for. And you know what? We don't have to worry about the truth. We don't have to talk about the truth, at least not directly. There are ways around it. You know, for example, if we concentrate on metaphor, well then, you know, like we can just learn to talk about ourselves in confidence while talking about something else entirely. That day, I made a note in my journal. Next session metaphor a little while later i'm walking through prison on my way to my classroom this is a victorian prison you should be imagining me in right now okay so basically just imagine porridge all right it looks like porridge just except everyone's a skinhead and they all have their hands down the front of their jogging bottoms at all times uh, apart from that just like porridge so like I'm kind of walking through and there's a couple of cons coming the other way and I spot a familiar face hidden in the line. It's Sam. And both of us were surprised to see each other, but a split second decision is made and we decide not to acknowledge each other. I don't know why, it just seemed like the least complicated thing to do. Seeing Sam in prison, you know, it really shook me up. As prison staff, of course, you, you automatically put yourself on the side of the lawful. Of course you would, but the truth is, just like the prisoners, I was getting good at lying to myself about my innocence. One night, about a month later, my girlfriend gets a text. It's from Sam. 
he's clearly out of prison again. Sam says that he needs a favour of us, and it's urgent. Immediately we're worried. Specifically we're worried that now that Sam knows where we work, that he's going to try and exploit it in some way. He's going to try and exploit our stature within the prison to try and get something in or something out. So we call him back, but no, it turns out that this isn't about some new scam at all. This is about the scam that we're already pulling. See, it turns out that the DSS want to pay Sam a visit at his flat. His flat meaning our flat. The DSS want to check that Sam is actually living there. After all this time, our crime has now resurfaced. And now we've got just 24 hours to turn our flat back into Sam's. So we take big bin bags and we pull everything out. All the cosmetics from the bathroom, all the books, all of my girlfriend's spotty bowls. I mean, if it didn't look like it'd be owned by a scrawny heroin addict, it went. In the corridor of our block of flats, there was this creepy painting of a weeping clown playing the violin. And I don't know why, but I decided to take it down from the hallway and rehang it in the lounge of our flat. I don't know why, it, it just seemed right. We called this process Samification. By the time we finished, our flat looked a lot like one of those cells in Walton. We didn't even need the painting anymore. The whole flat sang Welcome to the Big House. So, soon after... Sam arrives, and me and my girlfriend, we decamp to a friend's house to wait for Sam's phone call. An hour goes by, and then another, then another. Finally, my girlfriend's mobile rings. It's Sam, and he sounds frantic. He's saying, quick, what happens at the end of the wasp factory? She says, what? Sam says, what happens at the end of the wasp factory? Is there a twist? She says, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a twist. Sam goes, okay, phew, all right, I think we got away with it then. See, it turns out that in our haste, we dropped a copy of the wasp factory by Ian Banks just inside the door. And at the end of the inspection, just as the DSS officer was leaving, they'd seen the book and then leant down and picked it up. Is this yours, they'd said. Sam was like, no, it's, uh, no, it belongs to my girlfriend. I think she just left it here. The officer had handed the book to him. And then a low voice had said, there's a twist at the end of that. And then he left. Sam had thought that the DSS officer was mind-fucking him. He thought it was a Columbo-style twist of the knife, a little nod to the perp to say, I'll see you soon, sunshine. But no, no, actually there is a twist in the wasp factory. As it turns out, our cover story was still intact. So, we come back to the flat. Sam's cleared off. And it's so strange because it doesn't really feel like our flat anymore. We're sitting in this weird 
Twilight Zone version of our home. And this is the point when suddenly, out of nowhere, I discover that my relationship with my girlfriend is soon to be over. You see, we've got a little drunk whilst we were out. We find ourselves talking about our relationship in comparison to our friends. And in a burst of incredible honesty, my girlfriend tells me that she isn't attracted to me anymore. I mean, she loves me. She says that she loves me, but she isn't attracted to me. I think we've been drifting for a long time before that. Really, probably, since I first moved to Liverpool. But trashing our flat, it was a bit like breaking a spell and suddenly we could sort of see beyond the his and her shampoos and the fairy lights somehow under the creepy gaze of a sad clown violinist we could see our relationship for what it had really become and I know this is a bit of a weird story because it's kind of about my time working in prison And it's also about how this one relationship ended. And I'm not entirely sure what it is that ties these two things together. Maybe, just like in my creative writing classes, it's a question of metaphor. And it's easier to talk about the prison than it is to talk about myself. So maybe it's enough just to say that we're all capable of hiding the truth from ourselves. We can hide in stories where we're better people, stories where we get to recast ourselves as innocents, you know, in love. But that doesn't make us psychopaths, because unlike psychopaths, eventually we get released from these stories. Real life rushes in to greet us, and that could be the most painful escape of all.
my shoes are in love. Although I've never seen them kiss. But whenever I collected them from your hallway, they always looked so annoyed at my return. It always took me ages to unpick the laces. Hey, they would say, hey, let's go to an expensive sushi restaurant or a mosque or Michael's house. Yeah, Michael, with his ambitious new white carpets. I knew they were just trying to get rid of me. Occasionally, I would scuff them just to remind them who was boss. Once in a hotel, I kicked them off into separate corners, both of them landing on their heads for the loneliest night of their life. Because of the way I walk, one of them aged faster than the other. I had to seal up his slathering mouth with superglue, re-ink him with biro when the other wasn't looking. And eventually, I decided I would take them bowling as a special treat. And then I left them there. Walked out in my bowling shoes, pinching at my toes all the way home. Sometimes I think about my trainers and their love that I had no use for. I flick through blurry photographs of them, all taken accidentally, caught off guard, looking away from one another, safe in the knowledge that I would always be there to hold them both together.